What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Raphael Garcia here for episode 150, milestone episode there. Shawan, how you doing there, sir? Uh, not bad. Long time no see, man. Nice to be back. I know, I know. You've been running around with the kids, man, but now you're back for perfect timing. Episode 150 of the MMA Rating Podcast, man. Tell me, what you been doing with the girls all week? Uh, they've, just, they've been having these games, and uh, some of the games got overtime. Some of them were away games. And it's weird. We have these teams in our district that are literally like an hour and a half drive from where where they go to school to. And I'm like, how do you have a person who, who's like three towns over from you in your district? Like, why are we playing these people? Why don't we play the people down the street from us? So even if I get out on time, it's like an hour and a half till I get home. So that's that's basically why I've been missing the shows. I told Try you to be supportive. Got to support um, your kids, man. I know you have a, uh, how can I put it, strong understanding of traveling with the kids back and forth. So we're going to talk about the Kobe Bryant um, ordeal at the end of the show today. But before we get to that, we have quite a bit to talk about from UFC Raleigh, Bellator 238, and this Joe Rogan versus Stephen A. Smith situation. But before we do all that, let's start with... Letting everybody know where they can find us. As I said, my name is Raphael Garcia. I'm here with Swan Humes. This is the MMA Ratings Podcast. You can check us out online at MMA, MMA Ratings Net to catch our website and all the content that we create, along with Adam Martin and Michael Ford. You can catch us on YouTube at MMA Ratings and Instagram and Twitter at MMA Ratings Net on both platforms. You can catch me at R. Garcia underscore sports and Swan Humes at Black Jordan Brain. So with that being done, housekeeping is clearly tied away. Let's start with the Joe Rogan versus Stephen A. Smith ordeal. So this is a pretty funny and interesting topic, in my opinion, because we had UFC 246 two weekends ago where Conor McGregor dispatched of Donald Cerrone in about 40 seconds. And while people who were in the know about this fight, and what I mean by in the know is people who watched it for or who've been ingrained with the sport for years following and reporting, knew that this was a fight that McGregor should win handily. Um, We know what point Cerrone is in his career at this point in time. We know the type of damage he's taken over the last year, let alone the other 30 UFC fights he's been in. And we knew what this was a stylistic matchup that Conor should take advantage of, as he did. But that didn't stop some individuals from starting a narrative that maybe uh, Cerny took a dive, which is idiotic, or that he just didn't show up which is where Stephen A. Smith went, basically saying that uh, Cerrone didn't show up, he didn't have the experience to be in this big of a stage or the ability to perform in these big moments. So Joe Rogan, who everyone knows Joe Rogan from his UFC time, from Fear Factor, his podcast, et cetera, et cetera, questioned whether or not Stephen A. Smith is the right man to have in this position, especially when you look at who ESC, excuse me, who ESPN has on their roster from Brett Akamoto 
to Ariel Hawani and others. So what happened next is Stephen A. Smith decides to go to his Twitter account and give one of his classic responses, um, louding his, touting his expertise, his um, experience in sports. He said 25 years and what he's done as a sports reporter, which is clear as day. You know, he's, he's done just about it all. I think he's probably one of the highest paid media personalities in the industry today. However, that still doesn't mean that he knows MMA quite the way he says he does, because his comments were pretty much incorrect, in my opinion. Swan, where do you fall in this conversation? What are your thoughts about what we're seeing between these two? Well, I think the mistake people are making is Stephen A is not brought on as a MMA expert. He's brought on as a person who's more or less speaking on the behalf of the regular person or the casual or the hardcore sports fan, but casual mixed martial arts fan. He's speaking from their perspective. Um, I know a lot of people don't think he should be covering the sport, but the fact of the matter is he has a large fan base and having someone like Stephen A, whether he's super informed or ill-informed, comment on it, it's going to bring in a lot of casuals who will either hate on him for being wrong or people who will support him for being right. Either way, it's going to bring, pe- bring eyes onto the sport. And that's what, that's what the UFC wants. They want people to pay attention. Think about it this way. Um, that wasn't a great fight, but here we are still talking about the UFC and directly per se, but still the UFC being brought up. The brand's still strong because now we're talking about now Stephen A's in Joe Rogan's crosshairs and Stephen A fired back at Joe Rogan and now there's kind of an issue and Conor McGregor stepped in. Conor McGregor didn't step in on accident. He didn't step in because it's the right thing to do. He stepped in because it's another opportunity to build his brand and increase his Q rating by getting involved with somebody who's a very big name in sports. Stephen A's not even an athlete and he's got a bigger name than most guys, almost everybody in MMA and over, over a lot of guys in the NFL and NBA and the MLB. He's a big name. He brings a lot of attention. That's what they want. That's what they got. I don't think he's ever said that he's an expert in mixed martial arts. Um, he has been covering it for a while as, as a, I forgot the guy, Gross, Josh Gross said at UFC 41 when Tim Sylvia won the title, there were two reports Stephen A. So Stephen A has been covering MMA a lot longer than a lot of people who consider themselves hardcores or know-it-alls. They weren't there in the, in the lean times. They weren't there when it was really struggling. And, and for a couple of events, he was there. And that might not make him an expert, but you can't discount that. You can't discount that. You can't discount the fact that he's been around and he's covered it and he had attention when a lot of us either were very young or a lot of us just weren't into the sport. And he did it when he didn't have to. I mean, he, he was trying to build his own brand and build his own name. And he, he still took time out to cover and respect the, the sport of mixed martial arts. As far as his comments, I don't totally agree, but if we look at it objectively, let's look at it objectively. As experienced as Cowboy is, Cowboy has never really beaten elite fighters. He's beaten maybe one or two. So if we want to say that he didn't have the experience, he doesn't really have the experience beating named fighters. Almost all the best guys he fought, the named guys, the champion guys, have essentially beaten him and beaten him handily in a similar fashion. So in that extent, he doesn't have the experience. And I don't know that I don't know the Cowboy quit. I don't, I'm not saying he's a quitter, but a lot of people, even MMA hardcores, were saying he's going to take a dive. He just took the fight for the money. And getting finished in the first 40 seconds, doesn't, it doesn't help Cowboy or any, any of his fans' argument that, Con, that he didn't take a dive. 
I'm not. I don't think he did. I think Connor's just a really talented guy. But it's very hard for people to believe that a guy who hasn't fought in a year and a half, even though with a stylist, stylistic matchup, still comes in and and pretty much walks through you. I mean, it it look it. If you respect Connor for his fighting skill and his abilities, then you get it. But if you think Connor's kind of a, a clown, you think he's a joke. You saw what Khabib did to him, and you think, well, Connor can't possibly be that dangerous anymore. Then yeah, it is shocking to you. And I thought Cowboy had a chance. I thought there were avenues for him to win the fight. I didn't expect him to go down the way he went down like that. I mean, it's the biggest fight. It's it's his biggest fight, not for a title, but for the attention, for the money, for the fame. That was his biggest fight. That was his chance to turn the entire narrative around. And he pretty much just cemented the narrative that he can't compete with elite guys and that he tends to fold in big pressure situations. That doesn't mean he quit. That doesn't mean he wasn't good enough. That doesn't mean he didn't have experience. But if you look at it objectively, his experience against elite guys says he can't win an elite fight. His experience against elite guys says he can't really make it out of a round against elite guys. He lost to RDA in the rematch, first round. He lost Anthony Pettis, first round. Lost to Justin Gaethje, first round. Lost to Conor McGregor now, first round. There's been a lot of first-round fights against elite talent. So from that perspective, Stephen A. actually is right. And there's a lot of fans who, if they, if Stephen A. placed, Stephen A. used different words, would actually take his side. It's the way he said it, the tone he said it, and the, the directness in which he said it. Because it's making it seem like Cowboy's a quitter and Cowboy doesn't have any heart, which we all know is, isn't true. But as far as experience at the, t- at the top level versus elite fighters, Cowboy's probably got the worst record of anybody who's considered a Hall of Famer or an elite fighter himself. I don't know another elite fighter who has as many losses to dominant or elite fighters on their resume who still gets to be called an elite fighter. I don't know that Donald's... He has elite skills, but Donald's more of a guy who just fights anybody, and his record's been made off of beating everybody except the very best guys. That's how he's got all his wins and his win bonuses. He hasn't got them beating the best, and Stephen A. just put it in a manner that other people don't like, even though the majority of fans, when they talk about the fight... We're saying similar things to what Stephen A. said before the fight. They're saying the same thing Stephen A. said after the fight. They just don't like where it's coming from. They don't like the source it's coming from. But MMA fans were saying the same thing. He's going to quit. He can't take it. There's no way he can survive. He's going to take a dive. But now Stephen A., an outsider, says it, and now it's problems. It's like the same thing. You can complain about your mom, but I better not complain about your mom because she's your mom. Same thing. There. Sorry, my microphone was muted. Let Hello? me ask this question next. Can you hear me? Swan. Okay, just make sure. Yeah, sorry about that. My microphone was muted. So let me take that and let me um ask you this question here. Because I found that there was an interesting um idea about whether or not he being Stephen A. Smith represents the um casual fan in this conversation. Do you think that is a possibility? Because I think that that's an interesting way to kind of look at this, that Stephen A could be seen as like someone who is speaking about this from the casual fans kind of viewpoint. Like if you watch this fight at a bar or somewhere, yeah, he's probably saying a lot of things that the casual fans are watching, who are watching, were probably saying as well. Do you, excuse me, do you think that that is along the same course? Yeah, I mean, if you're an average fan who doesn't know very much and doesn't know Donald Cerrone past what the marketing says, what would you think about him? What would you think? He got hit with some shoulder strikes. He didn't look like he was completely out. Looked like he shelled up and he kind of quit. And the rumors before were that, 
I mean, if I'm a casual fan, and I casual fans usually parrot MMA fans. MMA fans were talking about he's going to take a dive. He's in it for the money. He's not acting the same. He's not talking the same. He's not as aggressive as he usually is. The, the fix is in. So if they've been saying that for weeks, weeks before the fight, why are we shocked now if when casual fans repeat what MMA fans have been saying for the past couple of days, at least the past couple of weeks? And they said it at a, at a press conference. There's been rumors about it. People have asked that question before. So Stephen A., <coughs> he's not a total casual, but... I mean, he doesn't have the technical knowledge to comment comment on mixed martial arts on the highest technical level. To be fair, a lot of analysts don't. He's just saying his opinion. That's all he stated was his opinion. He didn't say it was fact. He say, in my opinion, I feel like he didn't have the experience, that he quit, he was looking for a way out, and he can't compete at that level. That's his opinion. It, it just so happens that his opinion actually is closer is close to the truth because Donald Cerrone can't compete at the elite level. He's beaten one or two elite fighters out of the eight or nine he's faced. He's constantly been finished, and he's been finished in devastating fashion. You know, so that's true. His experience says he can't beat elite guys because he really hasn't done it. He tends to not be able to handle high-pressure situations. Nate Diaz, he couldn't handle it. Anthony Pettis, he couldn't handle it. Vincent Henderson, WEC, he couldn't handle it. Jamie Varner, WEC, he couldn't handle it. Justin Gaethje, couldn't handle it. Now Conor McGregor, he couldn't handle it. Tony Ferguson, couldn't handle it. When is for all the people who are offended? When is when his on? If you look at Donald Cerrone's record, where do you see the world class elite experience where he's won the fights? We know he'll take them. We'll know he'll fight anybody. But the question is, he can't beat everybody. He can beat a certain caliber of guys. Elite guys aren't. Elite guys aren't it. And that's just an observation that anybody can figure out just by looking at Wikipedia. So does Stephen A have the in depth knowledge to make the comments and and make him and not not be criticized? No. He doesn't have enough skin in the game. But Stephen A is a big guy on research. He likes to ask questions. He does his research. So I find it weird that he would make... I find it weird that people would think he'd make a statement without some kind of backing on it. And if we're really honest and look at Cowboy's record and look at what he's done against elite guys, it's really hard to argue against what Stephen A said. That's all I'm saying. I'll say this because, you know, I, you know, I, I actually spent a couple years working in that um, in one of the departments he worked in, he actually doesn't do the research himself. PAs do that for him and they give him like uh, cue cards kind of sorta. Like that's mm -hmm. what their notes are usually comprised of. So he actually doesn't do the research himself. He It's done for him. Oh, I believe that. But I know for a fact that a lot of guys who are MMA, who are an analysts on UFC Tonight and, mm -hmm. and coaches they bring in to comment, I know they, I know they get notes taken for them too because I know fighters, I know I've literally had fighters pick my brain for something and be like, hey, you mind if I tell so-and-so this so they can use it on their show? Well, so-and-so is a paid analyst. Why isn't he doing this himself? Oh, yeah, well, they have people who do that for him. So we can, we can pull that with Stephen A. We can pull that for a lot of people. There's guys who, who, there's guys who are respected analysts, respected fighters who are respected for their opinions and their takes on fights, and they, they're getting help from other people. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it happens a lot. I mean, remember we all remember Kenny Florian get bu getting busted he basically stole someone else's article to make the point, drive home a point in something regarding striking or boxing. So, I mean, it's, it's very common. And I, I'm not saying Stephen A doesn't deserve some blowback, but a lot of people are missing the point. He's brought on there to bring more eyes to the sport. Your sport is still being talked about after a very one-sided fight that, that really a lot of people felt robbed by. It's still being talked about. The, Dana White doesn't have a problem with it because the UFC brand is still being built. It's still being talked about on multiple platforms and multiple forums. 
So that's what they want. They want the attention. They want the their names in people's mouths. They want the discussion to continue. Stephen A. has assisted in doing that. I don't think he's the, I don't think he's super knowledgeable about it, but I think he's put himself in a position to speak for casual fans. And I, I can't hate on the guy for doing that. You know, I'm not saying he's right, but the points he's making, if he got people to do the research, then get mad at those people. They gave him these facts. He just had the guts to go out and say it. And a lot of guys wouldn't go out and say it because it's not their area of expertise. They would have they would have been more restrained. They don't pay Stephen A to be restrained. They pay him to come out and give harsh opinions. He's doing his job. And if the UFC is really honest about it. They want him to do his job. That's why they're still talking about this two weeks later. Sure. Good points there, sir. Good points. Um, we're going to move on to the second round today and talk about Bellator 238. When looking at the cards that were scheduled for this weekend, this was definitely the stronger card of the two. And at the top, we got Chris Cyborg winning her fourth title across four promotions when she stopped Julia Budd in the first round. So let's talk about that um, that career milestone itself. How important is it to recognize what Cyborg has done winning the UFC, Strike Force, Invicta, and now the Bellator titles? Oh, it's very, it's very important. It's very important because, I mean, winning, winning titles in multiple organizations separates you from the, it, it's what separates you. Lots of people win titles. Lots of people win titles. Lots of people won UFC titles. Lots of people won Strikeforce titles. Lots of people won Bellator titles. But very few people have won all three of them. Very few people have gone from organization to organization and won enough and won in a fashion that allows them to be world ranked much less world championship material multiple organizations it really separates her regardless of what you think about her it really separates her because it shows that regardless of the level of opposition in the early especially it's the length of time she's been in mixed martial arts from the beginning when there weren't very skilled women to the point now where there are very skilled women she's still been able to perform at a world-class level and more importantly even as she's lost a bit of her fastball she's not as durable she's not as explosive as she used to be She's still able to compete at a world-class level. And this is one point people are highly overlooking. She fought Amanda Nunes, right? Amanda Nunes beat her for the featherweight title, correct? Uh, yes. If you look at it this way, Amanda Nunes hasn't defended the, the, the featherweight title at all. And the UFC doesn't have a featherweight who's better than Julia Budd right now. So even though Amanda Nunes has this win over her... Uh, Cyborg's actually fought the better opposition at featherweight. She's fought more girls at featherweight. She's beaten better girls at featherweight. So there's still an argument about who's the best featherweight. You can say that Amanda Nunes beat her, and you're, you'd be right in that. But Amanda Nunes hasn't fought anybody else of any sort of caliber since then. I agree with that. But the main thing is just, it's, it's the variety. It's one of the things that separates Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey, because they were strike force and UFC champions. Big mm -hmm. organization. They, they, they were the queen of big organizations. Now you're looking at Cyborg. She's the queen of four of them. UFC, Invicta, Bellator, and uh, who else? I forgot the last Force. one. Strike Force. I mean, that's four organizations all in North America. All had the best talent at the time. When she was in Strike Force, she was fighting the best talent available. She's in the UFC. She was fighting the best talent available. She was in Invicta, fighting the best talent available. Bellator, fighting the best talent available. And at that time, at one point or another, she was the best fighter in all four organizations over a period of 10 or 12 years. That's a really hard thing to do. 
to be 12 years in the game and still be considered the best and still be considered one of the best. I mean, pretty much separates her from everybody. It doesn't excuse the PED things. It doesn't overshadow some of the other aspects of her career. But it, it's something that I don't think anybody else is going to be able to do because by the time they're leaving an organization, they're on the decline. Already lost it. They and was able to get out at the point where she was still close enough to her peak that she could come and face a world class opponent and win in hand handily fashion, win in an in impressive fashion. I mean, if you had to pick um, right out the gate, who is the women's goal? Amanda Nunez or um, Cyborg? Is it just and and, and why? It's, it's tough for me. I really don't know because Amanda Nunes has beaten all the named girls who would be the competitors. She beat Ronda Rousey. She beat Holly Holm. She beat Misha Tate. She beat Cyborg. So it's like if you put if you put the elite, the four people who would be on the Mount Rushmore, she's beaten all of them. And most of them she beat in the first round. You know, I think she beat all of them in the first round. You know, so she's beaten all the other biggest names, all the other title holders, all the for everything the Cyborgs accomplished, Amanda Nunes beat her and beat her decisively. For the fact that Misha Tate was a two-division, two-organization champion, Amanda Nunes beat her decisively. Ronda Rousey, two-organization champion, beat her decisively. Holly Holm was the woman who had the biggest upset of all time history. She beat her decisively. So it's really hard not to say Amanda Nunes because of the way she's won and the recency bias of, of how she's won. The thing that works in Cyborg's favor is Cyborg Maybe she hasn't had as good. She's probably never had as good a two-year period as Amanda Nunes. But the fact of the matter is, Cyborg's been able to do it extensively for 12 years. I mean, she's had like what two losses in the better part of 12 years, two or three losses maybe, and she had almost 11 years in between her losses. And she's fought Gina Carano. She's fought, you know, she's fought everybody available to her. And like I said, Julia Budd is another world-class featherweight. Felicia Spencer is a world-class featherweight, given the division, how it stands. And she's beaten all these girls. Maybe the girls were blown up banner waves, but the fact of the matter is the best opposition available at the time, and she was able to consistently and handily defeat them. So while Nunes is a more dynamic and more recent wins, Cyborg's got the period of time, and you, you, can't hold, you can't hold the opposition against her. That's all that was available for her to fight. She had to fight them, she did, and she did her job. So I, I'd probably go Cyborg just for the length of time she's been dominant and for the fact she's still dominant, even though she's in the physical decline. But as far as actual, the most impressive, consistent wins, like more more impressive, like one after the other after the other, it's hard to get past. It's hard to get past Nunes. I mean, Nunes beat Shevchenko. She beat Tate. She beat Rousey. She beat Pennington. Then she beat Holm and she beat Cyborg. Like those six fighters in a row, that, that's a real, that's a real murder. I mean, that's a legitimate murderer's row. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. A former champion. A for, uh, she beat Misha Tate was a two-organization champion. Ronda Rousey, organization champion. Valentina, future flyweight champion. Pennington was a number one contender. You know, I mean, it's really hard to overshadow that. It's really over, hard to overshadow the damage she did in those two years. But I don't, I don't know that Amanda Nunes is going to be here five years from now still competing at a world-class level. That's a good thought there, too. Um, let's move on to a co-main event. Darian Caldwell. Uh, real, real quick, can I say one thing? Yeah. I just want to say, um, a lot of, a lot of fans on Twitter were asking me about this, the fightsite.com, another site that covers fighting, and a couple other people. The thing that I'm really impressed about Cyborg is, early on in her career, it was all athleticism and physicality. 
throughout the, the terms of her career, her fan, her team has made her be more cerebral, be more technical, and more balanced in what she's doing. If Cyborg was the same fighter she was from her earlier incantations, as she's been declining in the UFC physically, because she has, she's not the same fighter physically, she would have got past Holly Holm. Holly Holm's whole basis was to hold her up against the fence, have Cyborg waste all her energy try, trying to get it off the fence, and then wear her out and pull away late, or catch her with something late and knock her out. Cyborg has slowly been learning how to fight in a more masterful, more technical, more controlled manner where she picks her spot to explode and she breaks people down over the length of the fight. When it comes, it comes explosively, but she's slowly walking people down. She's slowly breaking people down. And that's been a big change from her whole out, all-out assault where she just basically runs up and just bra- and beats you with those two clubs on her hand into submission. She's actually shown craft. She's actually shown discipline. She's actually shown poise. Now she's an, she, instead of just coming out and bombing on you, she's an aggressive counterpuncher. Instead of just throwing big right hands, she's coming behind a jab. Instead of just loading up and headhunting, she's working head body head combinations with her punches, chopping the legs up with her kicks. It's it's not technically super sharp, but it's a very intelligent way of approaching the fight. Had she just come in looking to headhunt, Julia Bud could have beaten her. <coughs> Cyborg's chin isn't as good. Her cardio is not as good. She's in decline. She had a very masterful focus with focused aggression and approach to her fighting, and that allowed her to win and pull away and eventually finish. Had she come in the same way she had even five years ago, Cyborg would have lost to Julia Budd. She would have lost to Felicia Spencer. She would have lost to Holly Holm. It's only because she's grown and learned how people are attacking her and how to attack them or counter what they're doing in an efficient manner that's allowed her to turn the corner and still be a world-class threat, even if she's lost some of her explosiveness, some of her durability, some of her physical strength. She's still superior to a lot of people, but she's not superior enough to get by on those tools. She actually has to know how to fight and execute fight plans now. When she does it, she wins, and she wins impressively, not dynamically, but impressively. When she does it, like she did against Amanda Nunes, she gets finished. So she understands this now, and I I appreciate the fact, the work they've done with her to make her understand that and make her fight with poise, discipline, and more restrained technique. Good thoughts to share. All good thoughts to share. Um, let's talk about Darian Caldwell because he picked up a win <coughs> as well. What do you think his ceiling is, and do we think he's going to fight Kyoji Horoguchi again once the Japanese star returns from that injury he's been suffering? I, I mean, I think who's he? Get? He's going to fight. Fight AJ. What's his name? Uh, yeah guy in Bellator he, in the next round of the tournament I don't know that he gets Horiguchi Horiguchi uh, and he's trying you're breaking up can you start over again please Swan title and then if, Swan yes we lost, we lost can you hear all me the, everything you said yes. can you yeah start over for me I, I don't I don't know that he gets back to Horiguchi anytime soon Horiguchi beat him twice, for one, and now Horiguchi has already lost both titles himself in a fight. I don't think they're going to rush Horiguchi back. Horiguchi's a star. He's like the face of Risen. They're going to try and build him back slowly and then start putting him in world-class opposition. And I don't know that Caldwell's on their schedule. I like Caldwell athletically. I like his grappling game. I like his physicality. But it seems like he's a safety-first fighter. He doesn't really want to take chances. He doesn't really want to inflict damage. I don't really know that he really wants to finish people. 
Um, I think he just uses his advantages in athleticism and grappling to control guys. And once he experienced a loss, I think it really made him gun shy. I don't think he's willing to take the necessary risk to the risk necessary to beat guys who are on his level athletically or, or who are far superior in an area of, of fighting. Against Horiguchi, he wouldn't take chances. He was clearly losing the fight. He clearly couldn't control positions. But instead of selling out or looking for the submission or trying to force a transition or a scramble, he was just forcing, trying to get takedowns, conceding positions, not really trying to force scrambles, not really trying to improve his position. But he was trying not to get hurt or trying not to be finished, which I respect because he's a fighter. He's taking the punishment. I'm not. But for him to really separate himself as a fighter, he's going to have to take chances. He's going to have to put himself in the line of fire. And, and personally, I don't think he's willing to do it. And if he's not willing to do that, I don't see how he ever really becomes a, a truly great fighter, much less a champion, not a dominant one at least. There's too many guys who are willing to take chances to finish him, and and there's too many guys who've got enough skill set, enough physicality to neutralize him enough to put him in spots where he's going to have to take damage. So if he's not willing to take that, he's either going to bail out or play it safe, he's going to lose, and he's going to lose often at the elite level. And luckily for him, Bellator doesn't have a lot of elite guys. But if he keeps fighting between Bellator and Risen, sooner or later he's going to have to face them, and he hasn't shown me that he can be an elite talent yet. Do you think he wins the uh, tournament? Uh, I, I think he has a pretty good chance. Um, he's going to face McKee next, and McKee is a better striker, a very good grappler. thing McKee is, McKee is not a... He's, he's been used to fighting with the advantages that Darian Caldwell used to fight with being bigger, stronger, better athlete. Now that he doesn't have that, I don't know that I don't know what he does against a guy who's a, who should be a better grappler and should be a comparable, if not better athlete. Okay, okay. Um, I want to keep moving through this card here. So we have Juan Archuleta and Henry Corrales fighting. What are your thoughts about this fight here, though? I think that this is a this, these are two top contenders in Bellator that we don't talk about too often. Yeah, I think these guys, their fight styles aren't built for long careers. Both guys are always in very exciting fights, very high contact, very high cardio. And I just wonder when that's going to start catching up with them. Because still, Bellator is pretty shallow as far as the talent level of fighters. They don't have a lot of elite skill fighters. Like we always talk about, they're, they're good for the first three to five. They're not great after that. And I don't know exactly what is going to happen as they start facing guys who are a little bit younger, a little bit more athletically gifted. Both guys are willing to take enough punishment to get into the positions to win the fights necessary when they're in wars. But I, I, I just don't know how it holds up against far superior technicians and far superior athletes. I feel like both guys are gonna be. Uh, I feel like both guys are like kind of streaking stars who are very exciting, fan friendly. But I don't know how long they're gonna be able to maintain the, le the their level of the level intensity of the way they shoot the kind of. Both guys are next fight or two. You're gonna have them regression. Not that they're not tough. Not because they're not skilled. But because of the kind of fight they're engaged in. They're almost always engaged in fight of the night type fight. And you can only have so many of those fights before you start seeing diminishing returns. What do you think these two guys' ceiling are? Same question with Darian Caldwell. I think they're. I'm thinking they're getting close to their ceilings. To be honest, I think they're good, not great fighters who, in the right matchup, or maybe against a fighter who's not very seasoned, who may have have athleticism, but isn't very seasoned. I think they can take advantage of them, like the Aaron Pico thing. 
a guy who didn't have a seasoning and, and has some questions as far as their durability. I feel there's th- ways they can be they can take advantage of guys like that. But I feel like once they start facing those elite guys who have that elite talent and the elite skill, the margin for error is very little. And they're guys who get by a lot on physicality, volume, and durability, which is great when you're facing guys who aren't big hitters, which is great when you're facing guys who aren't great finishers, which is great when you're facing guys who you can kind of manhandle and break down and intimidate. But once you start having those advantages, once you have a guy who can kind of catch a little bit and handle a little bit of punishment, then it becomes a matter of talent. Then it becomes a matter of actual skill. And I don't know that either one of these guys has the defensive or counter skills necessary to handle to fight the best guys in division. Make it tough for them, yeah. But actually beat them, I, I don't know. I haven't seen that from them, I, in my opinion. Okay, all right. I don't want to stick on these two guys too much, but I do want to talk about Sergio Pettis. Tell me what your thoughts about are about his performance on a Saturday, and are you attributing that to a lesser quality of opposition in Bellator, or is he revitalized, per se? I think part of it is lesser opposition. He's never been a big finisher in the UFC. He's fought multiple times, and he's never been a guy who's really just punished guys, beaten guys up, or, or finished him on the ground. That's never been his M.O., He's facing a lesser talent as far as athleticism, probably lesser talent as far as experience and seasoning, and a guy who's lesser in skill. So he had every possible advantage, and he showed the gap between that kind of guy and himself. Um, I still think he's good in Bellator because he's such a clean fighter. He's very smart. He's very disciplined. He has a very structured sort of fighting style that has answers to questions because he's never been the athlete that Anthony Pettis is. He's never been able to use the cheat code of I can just take it or I can just land that fight ending shot or I can just find that submission. He's always had to fight within himself and fight in a manner that has a kind of ascending pattern as far as I'm going from A to Z. I can't just go A, B. I, he, he goes through all the steps to get to where he needs to be. So he's more defensively sound. He's more counter based. He's more deliberate in the offense he puts out. He, he, can't, he can't just land a big kick. He can't just find a submission. He can't just explode out of a bad position. He's got to work himself into good positions, work himself out of bad positions. So I think Bellator is going to give him time, works for him, because there's not nearly the athletes that there are in the UFC. There's a lot of, he's probably one of the, at least for the most part, he's on equal footing as far as athleticism. He might be one of the better athletes in Bellator, and he's used to fighting a better caliber opponent. So a lot of these guys aren't going to be able to trick him or out-technique him or to out-experience him. He's, had, he's got huge physical advantage. He's got huge physical and technical advantages that are going to allow him to navigate a lot, a lot of the Bellator division. The only downside for him is, even though Bellator doesn't have a lot of names, the lighter divisions are notorious for having guys come out of nowhere and being huge, huge threats to established name fighters. And now, even though he doesn't have a belt, he's... He's the name fighter in the division. Everybody's gunning for him. You beat him, you might have signed your ticket to a title fight. So he doesn't have the mark to come in unfocused or to have a bad camp or to take anybody for granted because guys are looking to make the game off of him. It's a division with a vacant You know they're trying to get belt around surgery as well. So knock him off to establish themselves as a title contender. So let me ask this next question on top of that. Because I do think he's going to establish himself as a title contender soon. Do you think that um, Anthony joins him now? 
If I was Anthony, I would have joined him before, to be honest. Uh, I think what? I think Anthony Pettis is still back to his fighter. He, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, Anthony, I've never, I've never been the biggest Anthony Pettis fan as far as his actual skills or his cage IQ. He doesn't fight in a manner that's particularly smart to me or defensively responsible, or particularly technical. He's a guy who's both stops based on the physical attributes he had, and as long as he was at his peak. He was able to handle most guys he fought, and he went, and went fairly one-sidedly. But as he's declined physically, and he's faced guys who, who or got comparable athleticism, he's never been as dominant. He's never been able to establish the separation necessary to go on win streaks, or or even win more fights than he loses. It's always win one, lose one, win one, lose one, win one, lose one. As he's declined physically, the lack of defensive footwork, the lack of combination the lack of an active jab, the inability to circle off the cage or, or, or exit on an angle has left him exposed. And the only reason he's still able to do damage is because he's still tough as a $2 steak and he still hits for power. I mean, one boy's a pretty tough guy. And Anthony, one punch knocked him out. And Anthony's still durable because Wonder Boy was unloading on him and Anthony didn't take a backward step. But stylistically, he's very limited as a grappler. He's still in that, he's st- stuck in the, Early 2000s, aggressive guard submission. Guys anymore. His wrestling has never, his striking has never been great. And his striking is more attribute based. In Bellator, you're facing lesser competition. Guys who are tough, guys who are experienced, but guys who aren't nearly the athletes as the guy of the UFC. The guy, even now, Anthony Pettis would probably be one of the top five athletes. In, you know, and if you fought a welterweight, he'd probably be one of the top five like athletes in welterweight. He's just that kind of athlete with that kind of natural talent and that kind of durability. At the UFC level, there's lots of guys who got close, who got closer to him athletically, and there's guys who are so good in other spots that they can force the fight to the areas that he can't handle anymore. So if I was Anthony, I would have left probably two or three years ago, and he could have got big sponsorships. He could have been in contention for the title belt at lightweight and possibly welterweight. Had a new lead on life. But he chose to stay with the UFC for some reason, and and now he's in a position where he's pretty much just an action TV fighter. Give you a good round and a half of action, and then uh, he loses fairly decisively. I, I really, if I was him, I would I probably would have tried to get to belt two or three years, to be honest. I mean, what has he done in the last two or three years to make you say that staying in the UFC was a better option than going to belt tour? True. True thoughts there, sir. Last person I wanted to talk about on this belt tour card was Aaron Pico. And... I was going to write a piece about this, but Aaron Pico's contract is up, and I believe him and Scott Coker are having those conversations. And I wonder where he's going to go, and I think that the conversation is between the PSL and Bellator. I think that Japan and the UFC are out of the conversation. If I was his manager, Ali Adelaziz is actually his manager, I would actually lean more towards the PSL, but I could see him staying in Bellator and getting better matchmaking options as he continues to, to develop. If you were leading Pico, where would you tell him to go? Uh, um, I'd probably stay with Bellator or go to PFL. I think those are the two best options. I don't think right now he's UFC level. He'll have the skills necessary to make up his painfully obvious lack of durability. If he could take a decent I would definitely say give the UFC a try because he's his the problem is he can't transition. He's like 
Gray Maynard. He can't transition from skill to skill. He's either striking or he's wrestling. He's either striking or wrestling. He doesn't know how to mix them together. Now, if you're super durable, you can take the one or two big shots necessary that you're going to take because you can't transition because you get stuck in one phase and you get punished for it. If you got a good enough chin, you can work through that. That's what Gray Maynard did. He would get stuck in striking. He'd get lit up. He couldn't transition. So he did take some punishment trying to get to wrestling. Then he'd establish wrestling and he'd go over. Aaron P. Because he can't take a shot and he can't cut from him. So he needs to be around guys who are, he needs to get more experience to get around guys who may be able to beat him, but guys who aren't so dynamic athletically that they could finish him in a manner that's going to further in further deteriorate his ability and deteriorate his world-class athleticism. Because the fact of the matter is you take enough beatings, when you take some explosiveness, some of that physical strength, some of that quick twitch, it gets beaten right now. The only thing that's separating him isn't so much his skills because defensively he's very poor. What's separating him is the fact that he's got probably world-class athleticism, power, physical strength, agility. And that's allowing him to navigate these fights that he's in against a better class of athlete without a clear advantage. He's losing when he has a clearer physical advantage. I don't know what he, how he competes against guys when that advantage, instead of being 100% or 75%, is only 30%. You know, when that gap gets closed, the holes in your game become very big. You don't believe me? Look at Anthony Pettis. He's a prime example of how that ends. And if you can't take punishment in a combat sports game, you have to fight almost a flawless. So, to me, the option is go to PFL, where he's facing guys who maybe are second, maybe third-tier type fighters who aren't who aren't really experienced, who aren't who aren't really dynamic athletes, and who aren't really much better than him in any individual skill set. Plus, he's going to be on ESPN. They'll sell his story. He has the potential to make money. He has the potential to get his face out there and build his brand. Or stick with Bellator because Bellator has done right by him for the most part, and they continue to push him. But probably the best option would be the PFL. Like I said, it's on a bigger network. It's it's got more reach. It has a chance for him to build his brand, and it's a chance for him to. He's gonna have to develop a new identity as a fighter, and fighting against PFL caliber type guys should, in theory, allow him to develop those skills and develop himself. But once again, like I said, when you can't take punishment. Any fight you take is a toss-up because any shot you take could be the end of you. So, are you surprised with where he is in his professional development right now? In one instance, not really. I mean, the fact of the matter is he wanted to take on the toughest guys. And even when he was winning, he was facing guys who were really experienced, guys who had been in tough fights, guys who weren't maybe not the level of athlete he is, but guys who've been in much more fights, who've been tested, who've been put in bad spots and shown the ability to fight their way out of them. And when you take that kind of tough road, you're going to experience losses. I mean, in my opinion, you're just going to. I mean, John Jones was able to navigate that, but John Jones also was a very, very durable fighter. That's essentially what's allowed him to maintain his win streak. And once it became clear that Pico wasn't particularly durable, you had to see the fact that he was going to start experiencing some losses. And to that extent, that's why I'm not shocked about where he's at in his career right now. He's still got tremendous talent. He's still got tremendous skill. But the question is, can his body, can his chin hold up long enough for his skills and his ability and his physical talent to be the determining factor in his fight? 
So I, I'm not shocked. I, I, I was very impressed that he took the tough fight that he took. I, I backed him on it, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But if you thought that you're going to take experienced, tough, gritty guys, and you were just going to walk through every single one of them without any harm or, or form or fashion of failure, that, then his him and his team were painfully arrogant, and they paid a price for that. And after he, he experienced a couple of devastating knockouts, I probably would have taken more time off and really worked on developing his skill set and developing his defensive awareness. When he started rushing tr- rushing back, trying to get back the fame he had before or get back the mojo he had before, that's when I really knew things were going to get bad. Because instead of taking the appropriate time to heal, let your body recover and develop skill sets so that you won't find yourself in bad spots or so you can navigate bad spots, he just put himself right back in against tough opposition. And that's just not the answer, not when you're a professional fighter. Somebody has to have the good sense to say, this is not smart. We need a plan. And it seems like he's calling the shots. And that's what's gotten him into the position he's in right now because he's a young, talented kid who thinks he can't be beaten, thinks he can beat anybody. And he didn't respect the sport or respect his opposition enough to take the appropriate measures to handle the spots they put him in correctly. Do you think he has the... Is he at a point in his career where he could win a PFL title? I think he has the talent and he's got enough skill... I just, I just don't know if he's durable enough. I mean, we've seen fights where he's literally dominating one punch away from knocking somebody out, and then he gets caught, and he's finished. Against Borix, he's handling him. Out-wrestling, out-grappling him, gets knee done. Against Corrales, he's beating him from pillar to post, done. In the first fight he had, the guy caught him clean. He couldn't recover, and he got finished. So it's the fact that he, he just can't seem to take any real prolonged punishment. And I don't see how you become a long-term champion, much less a dominant champion, if you can't take any sort of punishment. It seems at some point or another, you're going to get sprawled on, somebody's going to counter, or somebody's going to leave with a shot and hit you, and if you can't handle it, and you can't recover from it, you can only go so far in this sport. You have to be able to take a certain amount of punishment to be a champion. Now, maybe he can just out-athlete people, and that's a possibility if he fights smart enough, he can just out-athlete them, but I don't know. I I don't know how long he can last, especially when so many people have seen him finish. When people have seen you finish like that, it makes them a little braver. It makes them a little bit more willing to take risks from the beginning of fights to the end of fights because they know at any point they can find the the strike they need to finish you. And it only takes one. It literally only takes one to beat him. Hmm. All right, sir. We're going to move on to, uh, what is this? UFC rivalry. Just a quick recap of this fight card as well. Um I only really wanted to talk about two fights here, and that's the, the main event where Curtis Blaze defeated Junior Dos Santos and the, the co-main event where Michael Chiesa defeated uh, Rafael Dos Santos. Talk to me about Curtis Blades. Um, he's ranked number four in the division, but he has a tough argument for his title shot, seeing how he's lost twice to Francis Ngannou. Uh, what do, do you ever see this guy getting to the point of being a title challenger? I mean, if things fall correctly for him, Ngana could lose a fight, and then he could he could be up he could be up because he won his last fight. The biggest the biggest roadblock for Blades has always been the fact that he's another guy who can't transition from one range to another. He just can't do it. He's either wrestling or he's striking. And he's never been a good enough wrestler where he can just get clean takedowns right off the bat. He's always a guy who takes ten take attempts ten takedowns and gets three. Or gets four. He's not a guy who just blows you off your feet or chains take take chains takedown attempts 
well enough where he can drag you down without taking a certain amount of punishment or without you getting away from him and forcing him to reset. So when you're that kind of guy, you have to be able to set up your takedowns with your strikes, then shoot in or get somebody defensive with your takedowns and then follow up with your strikes. He's never been able to do that. That's why, <coughs> excuse me, he was able to beat Nganu. He was never able to hide what he's doing well enough to get in a position to put Nganu on the defensive or, or disrupt his rhythm to where he can control him with his offense. Beating Junior DeSantos is as impressive as it is in a name. Junior DeSantos isn't the guy he used to be. He Athletically, he's not as explosive. He's not as durable. And because he's been finished so many times, he's not nearly as aggressive or as brave as he used to be in his striking. Junior DeSantos is a still a good fighter, but that's only at heavyweight. And if he was a light heavyweight, he'd be a he'd still be a contender. At heavyweight, he's still a contender. But that has a lot more to do with the division than it has to do with anything with his skill set. Curtis Blades, yes, he won by knockout. I guess that's impressive. But he fought a guy who's been finished how many times in the past three or four years? DeSando's mm-hmm. chin isn't there. His ability to recover isn't there. He can pitch. He can't catch. So Blades knocking it. Blades being able to take some punishment and survive. That's fairly impressive to me, but the fact that he was taking those shots shows me his defense still isn't there on the feet, and he knocked DeSantos out, but I think any heavyweight who, who can sit down on their punches and commit at this point can knock DeSantos out. So that, that win doesn't impress me as much as, as most people think it, it should. I wouldn't favor him to beat Daniel Cormier. I wouldn't favor him to beat Steve Miocic. I wouldn't favor him to beat Francis Ngannou. His game is still too separated. It's not a true mixed martial arts game. And he's not good enough in either of the, of the two things that he does to beat elite guys. He's not a good enough striker offensively or defensively to beat the better guys. He's not a good enough wrestler offensively or defensively to beat the better guys. I don't know that he beats Derek Lewis because he can't transition. And at some point, Lewis is going to get up and find a counter. And he's not good enough to get away from him. And we know that when he gets hit by big power, he goes to sleep. Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou are essentially the same fighter. One's more respectful and better shape. One's more over the top and out of shape. But essentially, they do the same thing in their fight. Defend, defend, get up, get up, land big counters, and fight. And and Blade still hasn't developed his fight game enough to, to transition from one realm to the other. And until he does, I can't see him beating any of the, the really, in my opinion, top four, top five heavyweight. So, I'm guessing that you don't ever see him challenging for a title unless something slips out of someone slips out of a opportunity. Looking at the top three men, Steve Miocic, Daniel Cormier, and Francis Ngannou, which one of those three does Curtis Blades have the best op- opportunity of defeating? I can't say Ngannou because Ngannou's beating him decisively. <laughs> um, I guess probably Cormier because he he can push the pace on Cormier. Cormier seems to get away from his wrestling a little bit, seems to want to strike a little bit. And even though I don't know that he could get Cormier down, if his cardio's up enough, he can chase the takedowns and force Cormier out of his rhythm and out of his pattern and maybe weigh on him and wear on him. Or he could just try a stand-up exchange because as devastating as Cormier is offensively, not skilled, but devastating, he's terribly defensively. He doesn't like it to the body. So he could, he could in theory, get to the clinch and punish him to the body or just bite down on his mouthpiece and engage in exchanges with Cormier and see if he could he could knock him out or hurt him to the body or maybe get Cormier so caught up in exchanges that he could that he could transition to wrestling exchanges and maybe push the pace on Cormier and wear him out. I just don't think he has the ability to close the distance on on Ngannou 
And Ife's got much more distance management, a more solidified defensive striking game as far as his counters, his footwork and his positioning. And he's got world class, he's got world championship medal, world championship cardio. So I, I don't know where Blades would be able to assert himself against Nganu or Stipe, given his youth and his physical size and his strength. I feel like he could maybe do some things against Daniel Cormier, who is who is probably one fight from retirement at this stage. But I don't think Cormier takes that fight because it didn't do anything for him. All right, all right. Last thing I wanted to talk about was um, Michael Chiesa, who probably his stock of, like jumped immensely because he defeated a man who was ranked number five by the UFC. And let's see where he sits actually now. With his win over... Rafael dos Anjos, I think this is his most important win of his career. And now Michael Chiesa is sitting at number seven in the division. Let's talk about two things. One, how big of a win is this for Chiesa? And two, what would you do with him next? It's a big win, more name than anything else, because Chiesa's whole win streak at um in welterweight, who did he beat? Carlos Condit? Did he beat Condit? I think he beat Condit. Mm-hmm. He beat Condit, he beat Sanchez, and he beat Dos Anjos. Condit and Sanchez shouldn't really count as welterweight wins. These guys haven't been factors in the in division, really, since they've been in it. I mean, they really haven't been in, in the past two or three years. Neither one of them has been been really factors in the division. Um, and beating Dos Anjos, once again, Dos Anjos is a better classifier. But one, his fight style is a fight style not built for longevity. He's clearly on the decline, and the issue he's always had is fighting big, strong, grappler, wrestler types. And once again, in fighting Michael Chiesa, he's fighting a big, strong, grinding, wrestler, grappler type. That's the, that's the style of fight that usually beats him. Now, most people thought that DeSantis would beat him just because DeSantis is a better striker. He's fought at the division long enough. They figured he could handle the physicality. They didn't figure that Chiesa was physical enough or athletic enough to assert his will over RDA. Still ignoring the fact that Michael Case is a big, big, big welterweight. Like, I see him in welterweight, I'm like, how did you make lightweight? Like, it's amazing to me that he made lightweight. And he basically just ground RDA down. RDA is not good against grinding, physical, wrestler, slash grappler. He hasn't, he's not now, and he never has been. So this was a bad style matchup. We just thought RDA had enough, and he was a better class enough fighter to beat Kiesa. But we really don't know anything about Kiesa. We still don't. We don't know how he how he handles an elite striker. We don't know how he handles an elite, an elite grappler or an elite wrestler um, because he hasn't fought anybody who's truly an elite fighter. He's fought a bunch of guys who are on, who are on the downside of their careers and have experienced a lot of punishing and, and some would say embarrassing losses at this weight class. So it's good for him because there's enough guys where he can build his name and put himself in a position to contend or possibly contend it's not good because we still don't know what he has to offer. But luckily, he's on this win streak, and he's beating a bunch of names, which puts him in the position to call out more names and, and hopefully move himself ahead in the division. I know he says he wants Colby Covington. Uh, I probably would. I don't know that Covington takes that fight. I don't know what it does for Covington. Um, I, I might go for Gunnar Nelson, someone who could really uh, give us some kind of idea of what he's really capable of. Gunnar Nelson, maybe a Neil Magny. A good but not great welterweight, but somebody who would kind of give us a gauge as to how good Michael Chiesa really is at at this weight division. Because so far, the guys he's beaten don't tell me anything about him as a fighter 
or anything about him as far as how his size and athleticism translated at, the, at this weight class. Because he's fought two guys who were smaller than him, three guys who were smaller than him, and three guys who were damaged goods at this stage. So I like to call out a Kobe Covington. It's probably a good fight. It's probably the safest fight for him because Covington's not a great athlete. Covington's not a great striker. Covington's not a great, great finisher. He's a volume, grinding, physical guy in a sense, kind of like his Michael Kaseya. But I don't know that Covington takes that fight because Covington's still a name in the division. And I don't know that fighting a guy who beat Carlos Condit, Rafael de Sanos, and Diego Sanchez warrants him being able to get a guy of Covington's caliber right now. Mm-hmm. I would like to see him face the winner of Gilbert, Gilbert Burns versus Damian Maya. I think that's the next bit. That's that's the next step for him, especially if Damian Maya defeats Gilbert Burns, because I think Michael Chiesa can do enough against Maya to get to get the win there. I, I wouldn't mind seeing that fight, but I'd like to see him fight a viable guy who's like not. I mean, Gunnar Nelson is as a flawed fighter. Let's not mistake that. But he's still young. He's still in his physical prime, and he still poses certain problems. He has a skill set where. Case is just not going to take him down and ragdoll him and have his way with him. Nobody's really He's done not that. Right, since though. I understand that, and I, I and I get why he wouldn't want that fight. But I'm like, what have we learned about Michael Case? I can't even say he's improved. I can't honestly say he's improved because he hasn't fought, faced enough resistance for me to say, hey, he showed me something new. He showed me development in his game that says he can handle Kamara Usman or he could fight a Ponza Nibio or something. I mean, I I just haven't seen it. If that's the case, why not just have him face Robbie Lawler, who seems to have a problem with guys with, with volume, who, with grappling heavy attacks. You know, I, I I just don't know what to make of him. Like I said, I like the Colby Covington call out, but what's the reasoning for Colby Covington fighting him? If he doesn't want to fight Nelson because Nelson's not ranked or below him, why the hell does Colby Covington want to fight you? You're below him. Why does Tyron Woodley want to fight you? You're below him. Why was Jorge Masvidal want to fight you? You're below him. And you haven't beaten anybody in a manner that's so exciting or so dominant that says, I need to fight you next. So I don't I don't know what you do with him except to try and build him slow and get some legitimacy in these wins because nobody who's a hardcore fan is really all that impressed with these wins, not in the wins themselves or in the fashion these wins have taken place in. You could say the, the, the Desanyas win is an upset, but if you really look at the actual matchup of it, not really that big of an upset. A big, strong, physical grappler beat Desanyas. When hasn't a big, strong physical grappler not beaten him? Um, is there anything else you want to take from this UFC card other than my girl Angela Hill getting that big stoppage finish? Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, just a little bit about um, Sarah McMahon. I'm really hoping that during the time off, she really worked on developing an all-around mixed martial arts game. With her sort of athleticism, physical athleticism, and her world-class pedigree in wrestling, she should she should have been a lot more dominant in that weight class. You see what Tatiana Suarez did with literally hardly any experience in her weight class, in a tougher weight class, and then you see what Sarah McMahon has managed to accomplish, and you're like, how how is this? How are you so inconsistent? How are you so uneven in your performances when you have such an athletic advantage, such a physical strength advantage, such a wrestling advantage? How are you not able to turn these into dominant one-sided wins? And, he, and she, she's never been able to do that. She's rarely been able to do that against any comparable or world-class opposition. So I'm really hoping that over her time, she's worked on her striking. 
She's worked on her defensive grappling. She's worked on her defensive striking. She's worked on her mentality because during her time, she seemed to be a front runner and a bully. And whenever she came time for her to take punishment or came for her to work out, out a bad spot, she always found some way to capitulate. She always found some way to quit. She always found some way to play it safe because she was unable to force a fight into the spot she wanted to or take the chances necessary to finish fights. And while that's great and good for her health as a fighter, it's going to hinder her growth because once people know there's only so far you want to go, then they know there's a way to beat you and they know there's a chance to beat you. And until she navigates, learns how to navigate past that, she's only going to be so good. She's just going to basically be an underachiever because when you have world-class grappling and world-class athleticism, like legit world-class Olympic-level grappling and athleticism, how are you not a top three fighter the entirety of your career in a division, in a weak division? And she hasn't been that in years. You know what? I thought about um, Sarah McMahon in an interesting way. I think she's the type of individual that if she's not careful, she can end up like Liz Carmouche, where she continues to beat prospects and she does it so consistently that the UFC decides to cut her rather than keep her around. I'd like to think so, but the last prospect she fought finished her. Not true. You know, I mean, she finished her. She fought Amanda Nunes when Amanda Nunes was more of a prospect turning into a contender, and Amanda Nunes finished her. And finished her, made it look easy too. I mean, you know, I mean, she just hasn't been she hasn't been very impressive. She hasn't clearly asserted her dominance. She's eked out wins against girls who really aren't her athletic equal and don't don't have a fifth of her skill in in, in, partic in particular aspects of mixed martial arts. I'm not saying she can't win. I'm not saying she can't be a top 10 type fighter, but in the Bantamweight division that's known for its lack of talent physically and lack of talent and skill, how are you not constantly one, two, or three in division? And when she last fought, she was not one, two, or three in division. Mm hmm Good thoughts, sir, sir. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about from this event? Uh, no, I think, that's, I think that was it I have for that event. I, I did want to say awesome. one thing. Uh, before we finish the show, I wanted to talk about the Macy Barber, Roxanne Matapari fiasco. There's, oh, go ahead. There's a couple issues I have. A lot of people were shocked by this upset, and I wasn't shocked by it. The only reason I said I said it was a showcase fight for Macy Barber because Roxanne Matapari has historically had issues with big, strong, athletic fighters. Not that she wasn't better skilled, but the fact that they could explode out of bad spots and explode in a bit big spots. And once they landed a big strike or put a lot of punishment on Modafferi, she was never able to turn fights around. She essentially had to fight a pitch-perfect fight to be the superior, bigger, stronger athlete. But as far as skill level goes, and I, I tweeted this to her directly, that as far as skills, experience, and mental toughness, Macy Barber has nothing on you. Macy Barber's not that good a fighter. She's big, she's strong, she's durable. She's good with distance management because of her karate background. She's good with top control and and ground and pound, but outside of that, her defensive skills are suspect. She's not good at mid-range. She's not really good at defending takedowns if you're really good at setting them up and you're willing to really fight for them. She's not good off her back. And before, two weeks before somebody asked me, how do you beat her? I said, attack her in the mid-range, put her on her back foot, take her down, it's a wrap. And a lot of people are going to point to this injury and they're going to say, that's, that's why, that's why. Macy Barber just isn't that good a skilled fighter. She's still learning. She's still young, but the UFC is trying to push her and market her in a manner that makes her seem like she's a world beater. They did it with Paige Van Zandt. They've done it with other girls. She's just the next girl 
they're trying to do it with. But if you watch the fight against Hannah Cyphers, Hannah Cyphers lost because she wasn't able to hit as hard. She wasn't able to take as much punishment because she's smaller, less of an athlete, and weaker. She didn't lose because it was such a disadvantage in skill. It was physical attributes. When she fought J.J. Aldridge, Aldridge was putting a whooping on her ass. She had no real technical answer, but she was able to take the punishment. And when she fired back, J.J. Aldridge could not take the recurring fire. J.J. Aldridge isn't a tremendously durable fighter. She's not a tremendously dynamically punishing fighter either. So if you, she lets you hang around because she has to win on points and volume. When you're facing a better athlete who won't quit and you need to go to decision to beat them, you're giving them opportunities to come back and finish. That's what she did. So the, the, the trail le- leading to her defeat has been there and been there obviously for years. And I've been telling camps about this and I've been telling people on Twitter and they tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, but the fact that she's just not that good. Now, the injury happened, and I'm sorry it happened, but I don't know that the injury would have changed the fight. She doesn't have the skill set to navigate that kind of fight. And on the second argument I have is I don't know why her corner didn't call the fight. I'm sure they're going to say, she's a fighter. You don't know what it's like to be a fighter. You're right. I don't know what it's like to be a fighter. But I do know people's skill set, and she did not have the skill set to win a fight where she is physically compromised. She doesn't have the defensive grappling. She doesn't have the counter grappling. She doesn't have the defensive awareness to do anything except be tough and take a prolonged beating. And prolonged beatings are always the ones that do the most damage. Not the knockouts. The flash knockouts, that switches your light off. You're done. You can recover from that. It's taking two, three, four, five rounds of a beating. It's having an injury and having it exaggerated or exacerbated by continued usage. And I'm getting tired of these camps holding on to these hail win and their prime or potential at risk because they're trying to get plenty down on it. It's not worth it. And I think her camp did a disservice. She showed toughness. She showed, she showed heart in the fight. Nothing I'd seen from her prior told me that she was going to win any sort of fight in a prolonged ground exchanges when she's on her back defending or trying to counter. It was just a bad fight. The IQ, she didn't have the corner necessarily and that's with or without the injury. If you would have told me she would have been healthy and fought that same fight, she would have been healthy. So, um, I you got it. But the fact of the matter is, she was a high-age man that being, that's what she was. And it's for it. Okay. All right. So, I definitely agree. With some of your comments there, you broke up a little bit towards the end, but I don't believe that she's not. I I just don't, I don't think she's handled the loss very well. And I hope that she takes the time to really mature and really take a look at herself and look at her skills and look at her character so that when she comes back, she can actually make some progress because she's got the mentality she has. She's not going to improve and she's not going to be able to compete with these girls in the, I don't know, six, what, 12 months she's going to be out. So that's just my take on I and my take on her behavior before, during, and after it. True, true. I definitely see where you're coming from there, sir. Let everybody know what you're working on this week, uh, Swan. Uh, I finished my article on the Green Arrow shows after this year. I made an article breaking down the tools, techniques, and 
them, but there's a breakdown, a legal breakdown that, that I apply. The same way I would break down a fighter and break down their uh, specific fights is how I break down. Uh, we can't quite hear you anymore, sir. So finished and um, should be released on them this week. All right, thank you. So you broke up a little bit towards the end, but it's all good. It's all good. So we're gonna close out today's episode, and we'll be back next week to, to continue talking about MMA. And let's go from there, sir. Thank you for joining me, and let's have a uh, great week. <laughs>